Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to The Mentor, I'm Mark Boris. Rodrigo Pizarro. <laughs> Try again. <laughs> Pizarro? I don't know, how do you That's, say it? The original one is Rodrigo Pizarro. Rodrigo Pizarro. But I think I'll take Rodrigo Pizarro. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, there was a very famous, um, oh, welcome to The Mentor, by the way. Um, Thank you very and, much. Uh, you are the CEO of L'Oreal Australia. I don't know if you know, there was a very famous artist um, and now I don't know whether he was Dutch or he wasn't born in Holland, but he was born in one of those islands that the Dutch control. But his name was Pizarro, P I S A R. Yeah, mine Pizarro is P I Z. Yeah, and I'm a direct descendant of Francisco Pizarro, who was a conqueror of the Peru, working for the Spanish uh, king. Wow, you were got actually a, book, a direct descendant. A direct because I've got a book that goes yeah. in the whole, have got all my background until, and I can go until the 1500s where Francisco Pizarro was born. Well, let's uh, talk about that. I don't really want to talk about it, Laura, just joking. <laughs> I'm uh, happy to go there as yeah. well. It's a beautiful book. So, uh, okay, how is it a Portuguese guy or a guy from Portugal um, is now running L'Oreal Australia? Give me the story. How did you get here? I think I was born citizen of the world because, I mean, I was in, Lucky enough to be born in Africa, in Angola, which at the time was a colony uh, from Portugal. So, um, and the fact that I was born then, then I moved into uh, Portugal. And then from there, I started this international career. I think I feel that myself that a citizen of the world. So I've been living and working in both uh, Europe, in uh, Latin America, now here in the Pacific. So um, it's easy. It's just I go where there is a good adventure, where there's a mission, something to achieve, something different to achieve, both professionally and personally. So that's how I like to live my life. And I make the mention to my ancestor, Francisco Pizarro, because he was an adventurer and so am I. He was probably a conqueror. I don't pretend to be one, but I'm certainly an adventurer. We're not allowed to do that anymore anyway. No, you get cancelled if you're a conqueror. I don't think it's, it's the right thing, but I'm definitely an adventurer. So I like to go and get uh, new things done. And I think... Australia is far away for us to be. Well, we're the Angola of uh, 30, 40 years ago. So like Angola, they're like a, I can't even know, I don't know where the hell that is anymore on a map. Um, I know it's in Africa somewhere, but like, uh, where, like what's that like? I mean, like, how long did you live there for? I lived until I was eight. So I was born there and I lived until I was eight. Then there was a civil war and unfortunately I had to escape from there. Uh, but it's a beautiful country. I mean, uh, quite tropical. Uh, it's just subtropical and the middle of Africa in the west part of Africa. And it's, at the time it was a beautiful life. It's changed, obviously. Uh, it's been become independent. But it's uh, it was a very nice uh, way of life. It could be relating to Australia, very easygoing, uh, laid back. So it was really uh, cool as much as we remember. It was a long time ago. But then a lot of my reference in Latin America is the same kind. It's just because I lived in Brazil, I live in Venezuela, which all have this uh, very easygoing life. So I think I'm meant to be in this kind of country. So uh, I like, have few as in Australia. As in Australia as well. Do you think, is, I mean, is it, is it that obvious to you that um, by character we're easygoing? Like, I mean, is that obvious to you being a, coming from another place? It is in the sense that you're allowed to go get along with things which are different. So you're very tolerant in the way that you accept people from other countries. You've always told them to be flexible to their own ways, although you have your, your own one. And the fact that Australia is so far away from everywhere, even from a global company from lo like L'Oreal, it allows you to have a lot of independence. Because here I feel a feeling that everything is different. There is it, the local way of doing it. And when in Europe, 
it's not the same because I mean, you're so close to the center or in a global company within US, then you are in US, it's very close, but here you're far away from everything. So you allow that independence that there is this way of going at, which is completely different. And, I, and I, when I say the easy going, I mean, it's really progressive that I meant not as lazy at all, but really progressive. You try things that are different in terms of leadership. It's one of the most demanding countries in the world uh, by far in Australia, because people want you to be authentic. People want you to be really, they will follow for being their leaders. They will not follow for your title in the card. So it's really quite different. And I do believe that you are easygoing in that way. Just help me out here, but a place like um, or Europe in particular, um, it's very, I don't want to use the word classist, but it's very much established um, yeah. unless you're born in the right sort of right of the deal and um, you have that right of passage. It's a difficult place to get up in um, and people do follow others just by virtual title, you know, where you're born, where you lived, where you grew up, where you went to school, etc. I know the UK, England in particular is like that, Britain in particular is like that. Um why is Portugal like that? Like, um, it why is do you think well. it, it is? It is. It is. So, why do you? Why do you think? Why does Rodrigo think that uh, he fits better into places like Australia and probably some of the South Americans as well? Fits better into this sort of environment. And why do you um, identify with that country like Australia that sort of breaks down all those fake structures? and allows people to succeed based on merit. I definitely think that it evolved a lot throughout the years in terms of my professional experience. Today, I'm really focused on people. And to do that, you need to be very authentic. And that's what I try to be. So when you do that, I think Australia is more accepting of what you are. So because you're really thinking about the others, you have to be generous, you have to be selfless, probably. That's what Australians are looking for. And I really incorporate that as my values as well. And those are values because of my experience of so many other cultures. When you're going as an expat and you have to be successful in different cultures in different countries, by definition, you need to incorporate what they are. And you need to be that, you need to be generous, you need to be accepting that, you know, every culture is a bit different. So arriving here is the same thing, you know, I'm trying to be authentic because as Rodrigo, which I try to get the best out of it in terms of the business, but at the same time, I've never been led by my title. I'm very close. I lead by a lot of proximity. I walk the floors every day. I'm talking to people every day. I'm talking to an MT the same way. I'm talking to a senior executive. And it even sometimes creates confusion for them because they're not used to. I am dressed like an MT because I'm on my, my T-shirt. I've got tattoos. You know, all that creates an environment which is environmental proximity. And then, you know, when you are close when you're authentic there's a huge amount of respect for from uh, all the employees and i think that is what i enjoy here and i think that's what people enjoy in myself and believe it or not it allows you even to be more demanding because when they believe they really that you are there for them then you can ask more than when you're just thinking that you know you're just there for yourself and you ask these things which ultimately would benefit you more than them so i think it's really just uh Everything that I was being developed myself throughout the years just um, came in the right place, which is Australia. I think for me, in terms of leadership, is the perfect environment for myself, for my vows. That could not feel any and country for your style. For style, style, yeah. So you, you, you hit on the word, like we keep getting told about the word authentic. So you hit on the word authentic probably, I think I counted eight times. And authentic means lots of different things to lots of different people. And some people don't actually know what it means. And, that, and more importantly, even they do know what it means, they don't know how to live it. So what does authentic really mean for you in terms of allowing you to be successful? What do you mean by authentic? I mean, I, I sure I get it that you, you know, they can see you dressed in T-shirt maybe and you might have a few tats. They can sort of identify, yeah, oh, he's just a normal guy, um, which means you're not walking around stitched up with a tie and a suit and, you know, like I'm better than you. How do you show the authentic Rodrigo and, and what are the sort of techniques you use? What, what do you do? Let me get it that way. I'm, I think I'm not framed. I'm quite rebel. So I don't follow the rules most of the time, which means I'll be looking for what is the best for everybody in a certain moment. And I do believe that in leadership today, people are the priority and business success and results come after. So when I say I'm authentic, it's just because I really 
convey to them that, I mean, I'm really listening to what they're saying. I'm really trusting them with also my comments and, you know, I'm very personal. So authentic is being very personal. So uh, last week I had a conference, I was sharing my uh, issues that I had personally, how I was going gym because, I mean, it was very important for me mentally that I had to go overcome a few things uh, some years back. And so when you're really sharing all that intimacy, even in a way, really you are, that's when you're becoming authentic. When you don't go around just following rules, but you try to adapt what is best for the country, for the organization. And that was so important during COVID. Then it's when you, they think that you're authentic because you're just really doing what is the best in that moment. Not following, even in a great global company like this one, just following some norms, some policies, but doing what is best for the employees, for the organization locally. And I think that is... As CEO of Laurel in Australia, do they give you the bandwidth to be able to do things slightly different to say maybe the CEO might in Paris or the CEO might be in, the, in, in New York. Are you allowed to be yourself and do they, are they watching you? Let me reframe it. It's not a question that they give me. It's a question of me pushing it because that's how I work. So I work in pushing the boundaries. The day they don't want to give it to me, then we probably have to work something else. But it's not really, I mean, there is flexibility. The company, I think it's super flexible in that sense. But to get flexibility, you need to push those boundaries. So I'm not waiting for them to give it to me. I push in the direction to say, Australia is one of the most progressive countries in the world in terms of leadership, in terms of flexible work. It has always been. And I think COVID just exacerbated that. So I need to make sure that for the organization to be successful, not for Rodrigo, for the organization to be successful in Australia, we need to be really leading that way. And so I try to convey to the company, this is the way, that's the way I'm doing. I'm not asking them most of the time. I'm pushing to say, follow us because Australia will lead the world in terms of what leadership represents in terms of all the values I just mentioned to you. So it's a bit of a push and pull. Yes, sometimes they want me to follow a bit more rules and sometimes I will follow because I do understand it's a global company, but most of the times I'm just pushing those boundaries and say, well, this is what Australia has to offer. There's a lot of talent. There's a lot of things that could come and should come from Australia. So Australia for me should be the hub from a people leadership environment that the rest of the world within our organization should follow. Does that make sense? How do you do it respectfully? In other words, you you said you're pushing it. You didn't didn't purposely, I think you purposely did not say, I tell them the way they got to do it or I take this position. You say you push and it sounds like you push harder sometimes, push softer sometimes. How do you do that respectively without them thinking that you're being an upstart or you're being um, against the corporate rules, the governance of the organisation? What's, what's the process of being respectful? Look, I mean, uh, I've been with this company for a long time, so I know how far I can push. And uh, you just learn that with experience and you become wiser with time. But I think it's just understanding that when you're doing that, then afterwards you have to show the results and the results are both coming from financial results, which have been extraordinary in the last few years, but also from people measuring results because we've got a lot of surveys measuring things. So those results have to be good. When both of them are good, then you are in a condition to say, look, what I'm doing is right. Because not only I've got the best results in the in the world, arguably probably some of the best in terms of financial results, in terms of growth, in terms of profit, etc. But at the same time, people are happier than else, elsewhere. So what I'm telling them is just, if you look at those metrics, you are, I'm proving that whatever I'm doing should be right. And when that's happening, then I push a little bit more. So let me do it. Let me continue to lead this way. Let me continue to push in the direction that we're going. Let me continue to uh, have the vision of where we want to go differently. Uh, and differently does not have to be every time, but some sometimes a bit more progressive in the organization because, I mean, I can prove that it works. And I think that's where the push and pull comes. And when it works, you can push more. If the results are not as good, I think naturally you don't push as much because, I mean, you don't have that background to say, yeah, it is really working. So that's that's how I work. And the better the results get, the more I push. And it just creates this uh, snowball, which is getting better and better. And so I, fortunately, it's been working in particular in the last few years when I've really, after some time, really found exactly how to drive, how to find talent, which is really existing in this country and how to drive it. Then I found this sweet spot of the push and pull. And I think that's that's where the organization is very flexible to accept it. And I know that may be a rebel. I know sometimes they are annoyed by how much I push, but I mean, that's it. If you don't try to challenge the status quo, we're not moving, we're not innovating. So I try to push the company because I do believe that I'm doing for the right reasons. I'm not just trying to be different. I'm doing what I believe there is a really difference 
coming from Australia, they can be put in practice within the L'Oreal group. And therefore, if I believe in it, I push it. Have you had to do something, let's call it radical or um, a bit different? Have you had to do something in the, in the late, say, the last five, five years, particularly with COVID? I don't think radical is the name, but I think we adapted faster towards what's happening. So we trialed a few things faster than everybody else. Uh, for instance, uh, we thought that it was very crucial to be very close to all the employees. So we had these briefs, which is like a virtual town hall on a weekly basis. And we're very transparent with the employees about everything that's happening. I don't think ever L'Oreal had been so transparent about everything, about where we're going, uh, frankly, because we are saying that from the very beginning that we were not um, let go anybody. So from the very first moments, we guaranteed everybody got their jobs. And I think we did have even before the group worldwide did it. So I think we were in the front line on that aspect. Is that because you surveyed something and you knew that the, making sure that people knew that their jobs were safe was an important message to send them? Or how did you come up with that idea? I think we really had the belief that structurally the organization had the conditions to overcome COVID at the point with the vision that we had probably mid-2020 that we could overcome without having to um, downsize and touch any of the employees. And we did not have uh, any job keeper or job seeker at all. We thought that we had a structurally very healthy business that we could get along with whatever was thrown at us. So it could have changed, but uh, I think we always worked in that direction. So, and I think we did that. Uh, and then later on, the group did the same in France. But I think, again, we were also in the front front uh, before the group doing it, just saying, yeah, this is the right way. But then so many initiatives during that because we understand what the employees wanted. And I, we created a, a wellness break at uh, 1 p.m. every day because employees were just so tired. They need to break because they were working nonstop on Zoom or on Teams or whatever they were working on. And it was just nonstop, so back to back. So they were more tired than they were in the work. So we said at 1 p.m., no meetings. We were not allowing that. And then there was another day that we found that after, you know, in Melbourne, we had 160 days of lockdown. So it was so hard for the employees at that moment. We said, we give them a free day. And we gave them a free day. Like the, every week or every night? And we started doing it and we did it because we needed that. We just read that they were really tired. So we did a lot of initiatives and we had I mean, so many initiatives, wellness initiatives, so many things that we started here. And I remember that I was in uh, some virtual town halls group and they were asking us to share with them because we were the first ones to be in such a long lockdown initially. So we were the first ones to experience how to do it. We were the first ones to experience how to come back from lockdown and what was the right way to come back and bring everybody, people wanting to come back from lockdown. So naturally we were just pushing saying, look, I mean, you don't know because you've not trialed. We are trialing and we're saying to you. So I didn't wait for them to tell me what to do. I just went out there and said, we need to be uh, doing it before anybody else because we are in front in time-wise and things are happening here before. So we just have to go for it. I mean, that's what we're here to do as well. That's why we're senior executives. We should be leading that way. So we created in uh, numerous initiatives on that sense and they mostly worked because in 2020 and 2021, we have a score survey, which is called Pulse, that measures enablement, engagement, really the scores which are people wants. And the survey is, if I don't get it wrong, 57 questions. All the 57 questions in that year increased by at least 10 points. Nobody believed it. Statistically, it's almost impossible. It's so much the case that the guys which globally are measuring it, they had to re-go and re-see the results because they do not trust it was possible because it's never been happening. So it means that, you know, you can do it. And that's where I think the focus is that you focus on people and then you get the results. And so that's something we tried again, because I mean, uh, we were just uh, discussing before data analytics. It's something just after COVID and during COVID that we've really had the vision in terms of looking at it. It's again, something that we trial in the way that we trial is quite unique in the group. And so we're doing it and hopefully it's going to be successful. And then the group can decide if he's going to implement it elsewhere or not. So I think we need to do that. And I think there are the conditions in Australia to do to do that because there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of people want to do uh, a lot of things in terms of innovation. It can be from a business perspective, even from a people perspective. We just have to enable, give them, empower them, give them space to do that. So. Uh, unpack that a little bit, uh, particularly in relation to the outcome, which is the survey, but working out whether people need a day off or whether they need to stop at 1 p.m., what was the actual structure around that? Did you 
get someone in the office to say, look, there's a, a package, a software package, which we can send out to all our uh, staff or is there, did you just uh, create your own questionnaire? How do you find out these things from staff that they that would be attractive to them or is it just a decision you make anecdotally by talking to a half a dozen people? I mean, what is the process of working out what staff want, for example, during the COVID period? So there are two. The one I mentioned to you, Pulse, it is a survey which takes normally 95% of the staff answer. So we've got uh, across Australia, New Zealand, just over a thousand people, they all answer. And we got quite a few criteria where we can have really a lot of information and insights about what needs to be done. But I think during COVID, the most important is we were listening to what we're saying. And what I'm saying, we were listening to their insights. Sometimes they were just qualitative. They were not quantitative in the sense, it was not hundreds of people telling us what to do, but it was senior middle management is telling, you know, this group of people are starting to be very tired to be working on that computer day in, day out. And so when you get that feedback, we try to check with other groups of people. We tell you to other senior group because we have different business units, different departments. Is that happening in your department as well? And say, yes, people are getting very tired. And then it's just a question of decision that when the leader needs to act very quickly, you know, and sometimes you have to test and trial. I was not sure that it was happening across the whole business, but I had enough information, enough insights to say, I need to act because it's impacting this group of people most likely will impact the other ones. I cannot have the time uh, to spend in terms of doing a specific survey for that. So you just go for it. And then you have a lot of feedback saying it's really nice because people need to stop. That was the case when we put this wellness hour. It was just this insight coming from a significant group of people, but significant could have been 30 people out of uh, a thousand is not uh, a sample which representative, but it's still important. So sometimes you just have to follow your feelings as well, your guts, because that's about what it's about. I mean, the experience has to have a worth as well. To get to the original 30, for argument's sake, or to talk to the senior managers who are managing the 30, and what could be five groups, whatever the number of groups are, um, communication is really important. I mean, if you're not communicating with your direct reports, and if they're not communicating with their direct reports right down to the the thousand, (laughs) um, you're never going to find out these things. how do you open the door? How did Rodrigo open the door to his direct reports to for them to feel like they had the the right to go and ask these questions of the various reports below them and then to feed it back up to you? I mean, what is that process? Do you sit down with your senior guys and say, guys, girls, this is the deal. I need you to go out there and find out or is this just an open door policy always existing and they did use their own initiative? It's a policy which is always existing. That's how I work with them. So we have a catch up on a regular basis every week, which is there on the calendar. But I think just let me bridge back to the COVID. During COVID, you know, can you imagine the distance was there. So it was more difficult to communicate. So I made myself available and I was doing walking catch ups and coffee catch ups. And then when the coffee was over, we with a drink catch up and we were just walking with a drink when nothing else was available. But I was doing that regularly every week with all members of my direct reports, all of them nonstop. And you know, sometimes there is some issues about, you know, we had limitations in terms of how far can you go. And if there was an issue, I would go and see them. I would take myself the risk to go and see them, even if I might have eventually broken a rule or another. But it was so important to keep close to these people. So I did it nonstop. I was doing that and pushing myself to be in contact with them. And by doing that, I think they were doing the same with their uh, closest team as well. So when you do that, I mean, you start to have a lot of feedback which comes from one layer below and one layer below. And so that's again, to the proximity I was talking to you. So it is something that I normally do, but it was even accentuated during COVID because there was a need because the distance was physically there. So there was a need to be closer to people and understand what's going on. And we had to act very regularly. So it was just natural for me and I was enjoying doing that. And it was uh, physically very good and mentally very good as well to do a lot of walks during that time and uh, a lot of coffees and everything. So, but just, I kept it going and then really, I really knew what was going on. The other thing is that these virtual town halls that we were doing, it allows us to have more proximity to all members of the team. The virtual town halls normally have like 500, 600 people attending. And there's a lot of questions and feedbacks coming that. So you naturally have on real time, on a weekly basis, exactly how employees are feeling. And so when you see a lot of feedbacks and a lot of likes, it's very simple. You know, you've got a comment on something, you know, we want some fruit, we want whatever. And there were some funny things as well. And then you've got like 50 or 60 uh, likes, then you understand that's something which is relevant for people. So sometimes you don't have to be too complicated. You just have to feel what's going on because it's just out there and people, they get the proximity. They start to be more at ease 
to express what they're going through. Funny enough, they do it better when it's anonymous, which I allow them to do as well, because sometimes you get more insights. Sometimes they're a bit more shy and they don't want to do it with their names. So there are moments where we said, okay, you just go anonymous. There's a feature in Teams that allows us to do like that. And you get all this information coming, but we don't react on everything. We have to be careful as well. There's a lot of ideas out there. You know, people want everything. Sometimes they want things just for themselves. You know, they would like uh, yoga classes. They would like their dogs to go to the office one day. You know, you react when there's something which you see that there is quite a significant number of people which are really interested because otherwise it makes no sense. You have to do everything individually, but it worked pretty well during COVID, I think. But that proximity is always there till this day. I'm doing on a regular basis. Anybody in the company can come and see me at any point of time. Anybody can organize a catch-up and I'm always available. I always have time for most people and for everybody, but not most people. And in fact, I get more out of that than I get out of meetings because you've got incredible insights of talking to any kind of people, any, any position than being seen in a meeting, which sometimes you're just referencing things and it's a bit boring. So, I mean, that's something I do on a regular basis. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Okay, we're back from the break. I'm here with Rodrigo Pizarro or Pizarro. Bizarro, he'll do. Um, and uh, he's the CEO of L'Oreal Australia. And he's done some great things with L'Oreal, particularly when we are hitting on the COVID period. I know that's past. Everybody's saying it's old history. But it is a period when leadership styles changed and some were, were much more effective than others. And Rodrigo was talking about here about his style of leadership, that is making sure that he – communicated and stayed in contact with just about every part of his business where he could. Is that a sustainable new version of what leadership should be for the future? I totally believe that's the future of leadership. Leadership has evolved to be more EQ driven than uh, with its emotional values, which are now the most important. I skill the skill set just of people, how good they are in their own jobs is not enough. Uh, people are looking for a new set of values, uh, values which are mentioned before, generosity, authenticity. Uh, that's what people are looking for. And I think that's where people will follow in the future. You see so many articles about it that people follow the people, the person more than the job itself. And I think it's right. I think more and more people are now wanting to work for someone in specific because they've got a vision and the values which they share rather just an organization by itself. So they go along. I think it's a perfect balance in the perfect balance in being people oriented and being business oriented. And I think for too long, we were just business oriented, although we were saying that we were people oriented. I think what COVID, COVID changed is that now we can prove that when you start by people, you get the business results. Until then, I don't think we could prove that. But now you can see, at least in our organization, that when you focus and you prioritize absolutely people and you do everything to have them really at their best, enable them, empowering, but also making sure they've got a, a well-being which is taken care of, then they work much better, they're more productive, and therefore the results come. So we just reverse the order of the factors if you want. People first, not objectives, financial objectives, you know, vision of financial uh, growth, etc. And I think that is what has changed dramatically. And I do believe that is what has been successful in our organization. I do believe that's why I, how I act. 
And I've involved in that as well. I was not always like this. And I, I think this is something which is with years of experience, you start to understand exactly what are the levers that drive better success in terms of the organization. And therefore, that's how something that, yes, it was accentuated with COVID, but it's definitely something which is here to stay. That is the future of leadership. And, you know, f what I've been approached today, every time I've approached for any article of the press, they want to know about Rodrigo. They're not interested in the CEO. They're not interested in the title. Sometimes they're not even interested directly in some of the business results, but they want to know what is the person behind it. Who is that person? What are the values of that person? And then they link that to the business. And I think that change is quite uh, uh, honestly uh, honest and something I really am looking forward to continue to see because that's how I approach uh, life and I approach my leadership as well. You use the word values a lot. Are your values the values of the company or is this a different different set of values, a different set of, set of emotional values that Rodrigo has that allows people to want to follow him? In other words, allow those to be led. I think it's both. I think there's a certain set of values which are my own, and sorry to be repetitive, but in generosity, proximity, those are values which are can, my own. Can we go through those? Yes, so, so those those are values I think are important, but that's not a value which is written in the company yeah. saying that you need to be generous and be to be proximal. What does that mean, generous? Generous is really thinking about everybody else, not just about you. It means that naturally, when you're looking at those people, you really literally think about what is the best for them in terms of their career development, in terms of their well-being, but also even personally to understand what they're going through, uh, what is happening to their lives, because you have to be very personal. That's something which for me, it's really being generous. It's not about you. It does not start in you. It starts in your people. It is a huge difference. And generosity for me, it's very close to selfless as well, because I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. You know, when you're generous, you tell not to be selfish. That is a value which I think is very much mine. But there are other values for me are fundamental, which are also the organization. They are mine and the organization. If it was not like that, I would not be working with it. And those values are values like equality, diversity, inclusion, sustainability. Those values are values which are really embedded in the organization today. They're really critical for the organization today and they're critical for me. And I'm fighting for them because I do believe. I talk about equality and uh, diversity because I've got a daughter and I work in uh, some of the initiatives we have like for women in science because we want to have more equality in science, in STEAM, but also because I've got a daughter and I want her to have a world in the future, she's 12 now, that will be more equal and she will feel that she can progress uh, better than what probably women did in my generation. And so you can see that there are some values which are very particular to me, but there are some values that have to align. I cannot work in an organization where some of the core values are too different and they're not aligning. So when I'm projecting myself in some of my leadership, when I'm projecting myself in some of the things that I'm pushing, which are beyond financial, naturally, because they are the values of the company, there's an alignment. It's much easier for me to be a spokesperson for the company because it's something I believe and the company believes. I mean, apart from, you know, doing all the usual st stuff that you do, like you've got a million brands you guys look after and you've got like <laughs> thousands of people. Um, you ran a program called as I understand it, data literacy. Yep. Look, uh, uh, at the moment, uh, 2020, uh, we had done before a lot of work in terms of the digitalization of the company. We were very good in terms of e-commerce. All of it started before COVID, so we could surf that in COVID. And so when we get in COVID, the business results are very good. So we had the opportunity to think what is next. And one of the things that most uh, FMCG companies, you know, most fast consumer goods companies are not doing well is using their data. You know, you can see obviously the tech companies are doing it, obviously, you know, or Meta, Google's, anyone, they're using their data. But the consumer companies are not using it as well. So we had an idea to see how can we leverage. We've got a huge amount of data uh, coming from multiple sources. We've got panels of consumers. We've got information of sales. We've got so much information, sales from e-commerce. How can we leverage our data? So we started a journey to say, I think data is the next generation of growth and the opportunities are coming through it. So we started at, at different levels. We had a program to get data literacy, which means that everybody in the company, everybody had a training on data. It could be very sophisticated. In uh, Python, for instance, it's a coding uh, uh, tool, language, yep. language. Um, if that's what you wanted to do, and that's for a certain group of people. It could be the advanced Excel, which is probably a broader group of people. It could be just how do you really use data when you see an executive? And so we had pretty much a tailor-made uh, training program for everybody because you need, if you really want to do a transformation in a company, you need to explain to everybody what you're talking about. If we're talking about data top down, it's fine. But, you know, 
people need to understand how it are going to be enabled by use of data. How does that empower them? How does that help them do their jobs better? What is the outcome? What do they have to win on that? So that's why we took a lot of time to explain to each one of the members of the organization, this is what it is in it for you. And by doing that, our journey and our roadmap of data was much easier to implement. And I say this because certain things that we're doing and they're quite unique that we trial now is sophisticated model of data, which is in a way it's anticipating the future, trying to predict because using of data can be about dashboards, which is about the past, but we're trying to be sophisticated in modeling about the future and predict that. And for our teams to accept it, it's quite confronting you know you always did the forecast you know you used at your sales in the past and you forecasted the future now i'm telling you that you're going to do that but you're going to use a model which means that you're just going to be analyzing the model and take the best decision based on what the model tells you but the model is more precise than you so to give you an example some of the cases that we're using in terms of e-commerce we've increased from 40 percent accuracy in our forecast to 60 to 70 percent it is monstrous to do that increase but then people have to be secure that what is coming out of those models, it's true, they can trust it. So you need to educate them to trust those models. So you have to go through all this journey of data literacy so that after they say, okay, I'm gonna not gonna be replaced by any computer doing uh, modeling. I'm just gonna be having these modelings, these models to help me drive better decisions. It's a huge journey. You know, the transformation you can do at any time, but I mean, the most difficult part is not the modeling itself. That is pretty easy. It's getting everybody to trust and use them the best way. So that's what we did uh, starting at late 2020 and uh, surfing on, of course, the good moment we had in terms of business. And we've been doing ever since, getting more and more sophisticated. So it's a long journey. It's a really long journey because we still have a long way to go. I understand data literacy and, and there's various levels of data literacy. And I guess you just build a framework for everybody to fit into the level that, that was most appropriate for them or where they feel comfortable. Yep. Obviously you, you present it to them, you talk them into it, so to speak, or you you, you tell them the reasons why it would be good for them and for the business. Um, then someone, then of course you've got your repository of all your data, which is probably coming from like lots of different sources. So the data all sits somewhere and let's call it a – source of truth or something like that often gets called. Um, then you have to mine that data. You have to actually do something with the data. You have to start to learn about it. And off the back of that, you can create some artificial intelligence around how you operate. And that requires modeling. How did this happen? What, what was the process? And because this is what real leaders do, I reckon. They, they take initiative and they do things that no one else has thought about. How did you get your head around that shit? I think leaders, they have to have the vision. It's true but then they have to be humble to understand that, you know, you can't know everything about everything. Mm. And uh, in this particular case, it's a question of finding the talents and be surrounded by talents. To be honest, it's not just about data. I've got a lot of the people working with me, which are smarter than I am. And I think we have to be humble to accept that that's the way to progress. You have to people that are really good at what they're doing in different sets, skill sets, uh, covering whatever you want in terms of, in particular, in the areas that you're not good. I'm not expert in data analytics. So the first step was finding who is the best person that can really be an expert in data analytics. Expert meaning technically expert, but also having the balance between the technical part and then the sense of purpose, which is understanding what are we trying to solve? We're trying to solve problems because you have to have that balance. Otherwise you just become a technical guru, which does not really work well in the company. So funny enough, when you have in uh, data analytics, that person, then the data science want to go and work with that person. And it becomes really a very incredible snowball. So I found this person, I brought it in, we starting all this program of data literacy, we starting working what would be the first uh, uh, models that we wanted to do. And then we started to hire people. And there were a few people because she was one of the best in Melbourne Business School program of uh, uh, MBA of data analytics that had worked there as well. She was a reference for them. So then there's the first one. Then there's a guy which was best in class for his year working with us. Then it's another reference. And so all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's very easy to continue to recruit more people because in this area in particular, they want to work with the best. And they want to work in a company which is giving them a space that not all companies give them. They are really part of the future of the company. They are part of the growth of the company. So they've got a really relevant role to play. So all of a sudden we have got 10 data scientists. We've got a guy which is a PhD in artificial intelligence. We've got a lot of guys which are the best in their years in the Melbourne Business School. And so all together you create a group which is working in different departments, but they're all working together. 
And then you start really operating well. So it starts by the talent, following the talent and complement and understand. I knew where I wanted to go. I knew because I'd participated enough in conference about data analytics, what needed to be done. But I could not do it myself. I don't have the skills to do it. But I have to understand from a business perspective how you can leverage it. And if you have the right person to your side, at your side, really has both that balance in terms of the technical part, then you can leverage whatever you want. And so then you accelerate and then you get everybody on board with it because you start seeing the results. And then it starts, and I talk a lot about it, is this balance of push and pull. Sometimes you push top down, you know, uh, you get to people say, we are going there. But then you understand that not everybody's on the journey at the same time. So you come back a little bit and you get pull everybody on board of the train again. And then again, you push because you see that things are not advancing as fast as you want. And so you have to push a little bit further and say, we are going there. There's a new model. You have to believe in it. But then you have to bring back. So it's a beautiful exercise we've been doing for two years of push and pull. And we've got more and more people that naturally now want to use data analytics, people which we're not using it at all, you know, marketing people, which are just using them to say, I can use better the data that I have available to take decisions, which means that I'm not going to change what I'm good at, which is the creative part. I'm just using better data sets to take better decisions and therefore use better my creative part. And sometimes it's just even creating automations, which allows people to do what they are good at. Give an example again with a marketing person. They have to do sometimes some work in Excel. They're not experts. If all of a sudden we give them the tools to have those uh, uh, Excel files, which are working better and they can interpret them much better, then they can do, they have more time to do their own jobs. So it's really about... Uh, the people first, the talents, the skilled people, and then get all the process to use it. And it's a long journey. Again, uh, we're still into it. So I think it's a long journey. It is quite unique because we're doing it inside. Most organizations go outside. You go to big consultants to get all this work done. And what we trial is to say, and it's trialed as a pioneer in Australia for the group is saying, I think we can do it inside as well. Which means that technical, our Data scientists are closest to the business problem. So it's much easier to communicate. It's ongoing. The problem and the data modeling can be updated on a regular basis because, I mean, you're working inside. You don't have to go outside and do a huge, big project with a consultant again. So it's feeding on regular time. It's being updated. People can really understand what is needed and they can trust it. They can intervene. They can influence it. And so it becomes embedded in the company and it works very well. So far, we're being very successful. So I think we continue to push even further. What does a leader like you read outside of your work environment. So what do you look at to inspire you for your next big effort in terms of change to the organization? I mean, obviously data, data analytics was a, a big deal. It still is a big deal, um, but it was a big deal to introduce those sorts of things a couple of years ago, getting data scientists and, you know, building models out and, uh, you know, getting everybody literate around data so they're not scared about the whole concept. They were, they were radical things. What do you read to keep Rodrigo up to date with what is happening in terms of best practice around the world? I try to most of all just be listening to a lot of uh, leaders uh, around the world and what they're doing in different areas. So, uh, obviously, How do you do that? How do you follow them? I just follow them mostly uh, online in yeah. multiple platforms and reading about news and whenever, you know, fortunately we have artificial intelligence. When you start looking for something, your feed becomes automatically on those things. So you naturally get a lot of yep. information coming on that. So when I was uh, reading about- Because about Rodrigo. Absolutely. Basically. So when I, unfortunately, sometimes it just gets you one direction. So sometimes you have to look at something outside, otherwise you're getting all the same feeds. But when I was looking about digital and e-commerce, I was getting a huge amount of information about it and I knew that the best was happening in China. So fortunately, we have a very good operation in China. So I traveled to China and I was uh, for a week working with uh, e-commerce teams in China, both our own and the partners that we have in China to, to learn about it. But sometimes it comes out of, uh, you know, you're in a conference and you understand the, that you have a direction that you want to take. And someone mentions a book and you see, well, that makes sense to do it. I'm going to give you an example of the last book that I've been mentioning. I mentioned in my speech to the whole team in the town hall a week ago, which is Atomic Habits. And Atomic Habits is no more than, you know, the consistence of 1% gains. And today, the level of sophistication that we have in the company, that is what the future is. Most of the big transformations, we've done it, but now it's really being precise. There's 1%. If everybody tries 1% more, if everything we try to do, we always try to improve 1%, that consistency of precision that we have to put in place today is what's going to take us to the next level. So that is a book, which is a simple book at the end of the day. And I'm just summarizing it in probably 
too much in one phrase, but it's really about this precision of 1% gain. That is what it is about. And so sometimes you get this influence because, I mean, someone told me about it and I said, oh, this makes sense. And it was started because of the purpose of, uh, 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 how to say, the athletics. And it was a cyclist, a cyclist uh, they use a cyclism, cyclism team, in, cyclism, yeah. team in, uh, in the UK. So it's about sports initial that was coming. And I've used it personally when I read the book in terms of gym purpose for my own fitness program that I needed. And I use it and the consistency of using it works. And then I said, well, if it works really in sport, why shouldn't it work in business? So it's exactly the same principle. So I said, yeah, I'm going to try it. So I'm now talking about it and I'm leading the team to understand, just don't have to read the book if you don't want to, but there's an essence that it can be applied to the business. So sometimes it comes out of anywhere specific case there. There was a, a guy on a train that we were having and he talked about it. And I said, when this is what the best sport teams are doing, this is the base. And I said, that's fantastic. So I trialed myself in gym. It works pretty well, by the way, in terms of my gym objectives. And then I said, can I do that in the organization? So that's exactly what I've just presented. And I think is the future vision on the next couple of years for us is really that 1% gain. So. I like the 1% gain because uh, if you do 1% on 1% on 1%, eventually you get a quite a big number. But my observation is as a leader, uh, you're probably better called to be called Rodrigo the Curious because curiosity is really important as a leader. That, that characteristic of being curious, like go to China, find out what they're doing in China. Uh, uh, you hear something that makes some sense about a book and you go buy the book and you read the book and you think you use it yourself for gym and you think, well, I'm curious, maybe it will work for business as a leader in terms of um, bringing your business forward really in big leaps. Well, I think just one percenters, but big leaps as well, like as an organisation. I think you've just expressed it better than I can do that, but I think it's a, it's a unique skill that you need to do yeah. because if you want to continue to progress, you need to be always anticipating what's going to happen. And you can't do that if you're not curious. And the other part which goes with curious is risk taker. And I'm a huge risk taker because both of them have to happen. You need to be curious, but then afterwards, you know, if you're trying something that's never been done by definition, either you're a risk taker or you're not going to be able to do it. So yeah. both have to be there because if you're just curious, yeah, fine, you find out about things, but then how are you going to implement them? And so I have both of them. I'm curious, I find little things and I don't get it always right because I think it's important to understand it from failure as well. And I do have a few, but... It is just that curiosity, but then I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to do it. I do believe in it. So curiosity, risk-taking and belief. I believe what I'm doing. Then I have to get my team to believe on it. And when I get everybody on board, then there is an avenue of uh, adventure event. But it's my adventurous uh, background that comes back to my birth, probably. It's just I'm adventurous. So the adventurous curiosities, certain things. Oh, that I adventure say, adventurer and curiosity, they go hand in hand. Totally. But you're right. You don't want to be the curious person who's just a ponderer, thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll have a look at that and do nothing about it. It's about assessing the risk and executing. You've got to do something about it. There's no point just being curious and know about everything and do nothing about it. You have to say, well, I'm going to take this forward. I'm going to try this out. You've got to take a risk yep. and you've got to back yourself, which is what you say is belief, but you, you just got to back yourself and be prepared to make a mistake. By the way, we, this takes it right back to the very beginning when you said you push, 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 because in order to make a mistake, you've got to have all stakeholders, which includes those people you report to, to be prepared to allow you to back yourself. And that means you've got to pitch to them, present to them, push it a little bit, but not disrespectfully, um, put it in such a way that they, they, they're prepared to say, okay, Rodrigo, have a crack. Go for it, as we would say in Australia, go for it, have a crack. Um, and that's about them respecting you too. I mean, and that, that, you know, they've got to respect you and you've got to respect them as well. But so we sort of got a virtual loop here. Like it's curiosity, the ability to back yourself, so the ability to believe in yourself or back yourself, and then the ability to get all stakeholders on board, which includes not just the people you report to, but all the people who report to you as well, all your direct reports. Totally. You've got to get them on side. And that's about communication. And that doesn't happen overnight. That's something you build. That's trust. You build that over a long period of time. And, you know, COVID actually was probably great for you because um, it allows you to build that sort of bridge because you had to. You had to talk to people. You had to hold virtual town halls every week. You had to go for walks because you couldn't 
just sit home and do nothing. You know, the only way you're going to communicate with someone is go for a walk or coffee uh, dates or whatever they call them. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you built a, a I don't want to call it a regime, but you, you built a platform to do these things that you see that your curiosity actually pushes you to do. And, you know, I th- I th- that's pretty cool. And uh, L'Oreal has done very well for itself in Australia. And, you know, you're a standout in the world or L'Oreal, Australia is a standout in the world of the L'Oreal world. Um, you represent lots and lots and lots and lots of brands. You're a bit of a household name. You're probably becoming one too, Rodrigo, yourself. Um, do you have any questions for me? I have one question. I thought mm. about it, yeah. What is the most intriguing thing that you ever discussed here? What is really making you tick? And then when you think about you, you've been interviewing and you have a podcast here yeah. with so many people. If there was one thing that is in your mind, the most either intriguing or the most different, whatever you're thinking, but is there one thing that all these years of your experience here at this table you had, what would be that? Because I like to learn from those moments. So I like to learn from that moment well, from there's you. There's one word um, for me. And curiosity is actually a big part of it all. I'm a curious person, but... I think the one word that is the common word that attaches to everything that I do and everything that I find interesting is the word learn. You just said you like to learn. Um, that's what I do here. Um, and and I I think I can learn something from every single person who comes in the, into this room um, and every single podcast. And one thing I know that they all do is they're all learners too. So they're here to learn from me. Um, they, as you said, um, you're learning all the time and you're putting those things in place. Um, my job is to learn from you and allow our audience to learn from you as well. That's the success of this podcast is because our audience likes to learn from people like you and many others. And even if they take one thing, one little thing, it might not be, have nothing to do with data literacy. It might, it might be just the curiosity issue or just learning that, Rodrigo operates in this fashion and maybe I can do a few of those things and I'll make up my own mind but I can do a few of those things. So I think the thing that stands out to me the most, the the, the common denominator of everyone and everything I do in this at this table is learning, just always and a willingness to learn, loving to learn. I love learning. And, uh, yeah, so that's a good question. It's one I'm always asking myself and probably – in the last 12 months, also throughout COVID, um, learning has become, I think, the key to our success here. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Mentor with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a mentored podcast. <laughs>